everyone. You should have a, a Bible open to Exodus chapter 20 as we are actually kind of wrapping up our study in the Ten Commandments. This we have next week and then we are done. Uh, if there's anything that our study in the Ten Commandments have shown us is that these, um, these ten ancient words that were written over 3,000 years ago, uh, given to a nomadic, really a slave nation that was just now becoming known as the Hebrew people, are, are just as relevant today as they were when they were first given over 3,000 years ago. Living in the era of fake news, clickbait on our websites, phony social media profiles, it seems that falsehood is more the norm than the exception. And it happens everywhere. I got an article from uh, an columnist from Time Magazine once wrote regarding the Ninth Commandment, the injunction against bearing false witness, branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop, has always provoked ambivalent, conflicting emotions, he writes. On the one hand, nearly everybody condemns lying. On the other hand, nearly everyone does it every day. And, and this is true, and it happens at every level of society. Uh, and, and the thing that's so sad is it doesn't even surprise us anymore. The kinds of people that ought to be telling us the truth are often the ones that are lying to us. And just this past week, I don't know if you guys are news junkies or anything, but two stories broke this week that goes to show the propensity of the human heart to lie, to bear false witness. You know, one story was regarding a politician, uh, somebody running for the, the 73rd district in Florida, lying about their academic credentials. Another story came out of uh, Philadelphia, I think it was the Pennsylvania diocese. Uh, another story yet of again of the church protecting priests who had abused young children. And I'm not sure what's more sad, the fact that these things continue to happen or we're no longer even shocked that these are the things that are happening. From politicians to priests, the people who should be speaking truth seem to only give lives, or at least it seems that way more and more. Lying or bearing false witness is so common in our culture, we have become masters at the craft, haven't we? For those of you old enough, old enough to remember the rhetorical skill that a former president displayed when he was explaining the nuances of the verb is during his impeachment trial. It was just astounding. One of the funniest examples of this, though, uh, comes from, I was reading Money Magazine, and a business and economic professor, uh, Robert Thornton, he created phrases for his students that they would become, you know, business owners that they could use to gift employees who they wanted to have work someplace else. It's kind of a recommendation without them actually having to lie about that employee. He calls it his, the lexicon of intentionally ambiguous recommendations. Uh, if you're paying attention to ac acrostics, that's liar if you put it all together. The lexicon of intentionally ambiguous recommendations, and, and these are good. You're, you're going to have to pay attention to, to really see how crafty this is. He says, if you want to describe a formerly inept employee, you can say this, I enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> If you want to describe a former employee who had problems getting along with fellow workers, you can say this, I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. Some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, that's, what, that's the recommendation I got. <laughs> Here's another one. If you need to describe a very lazy or unproductive employee, you can simply say, you will be lucky if you can get this individual to work for you. 
And the last one, to describe an applicant not worth consideration, I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. Friedrich Nietzsche, who is an existentialist uh, philosopher and an atheist, really put his finger on the issue when he, talked, when he said this, what upsets me is not that you lied to me, but that from now on I can no longer believe you. He put his finger right on the pulse of the issue because the real or the true victim of falsehood is truth itself. When lying and falsehoods and bearing false witness become so commonplace, the real victim, the real tragedy is truth disappears. This is why the ninth commandment is so important. Now, obviously, we hold to it if you are a Christian because there are theological reasons that we'll dive into it, but just at a very practical level, when society embraces falsehood and lies, society begins to fall apart. And so this morning from God's Word, we're going to look at the original context of the command because it's a little bit unique. If you're a careful Bible student and you're reading, you notice that compared to command 6, 7, and 8 that we looked at the last three weeks, command 9 changes actually the form of it actually changes. We'll understand, explain why that is and how that feeds into the, the ultimate concern of the command. Then we'll jump to the New Testament to see a vivid example of what God feels about the violation of the ninth commandment, and then we'll end our time with a sobering truth. So let's look at it one by one. The original context of the command, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, reads this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, as I said, if you've been paying attention, command nine changes form pretty dramatically from commands seven, eight, six, seven, and eight. After all, couldn't Moses have just simply followed the pattern and say, you shall not lie? I mean, isn't that what the commandment's getting at? Why make it sound a little bit more flowery, like you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? Well, there's a reason for that. Uh, yes, and in essence, the command is you shall not lie, but in order to appreciate that, we need to understand a little bit of the original context. You see, the original context that Moses had in mind here was of a, of a situation of, of a judicial setting, kind of a courtroom environment. In other words, the ninth commandment intentionally alludes to a courtroom scenario. When you are giving testimony in a judicial matter, the command is not to bear false witness when you're in that particular setting. Now, this is a really important point, but it's also, it can be a very confusing point to us. Now, it's important because witnesses were the primary evidence when demonstrating guilt or innocence in ancient Israel and ancient cultures in general. In, in ancient times, courtrooms were not nearly as complicated as they are today. You didn't have lawyers, you didn't have fingerprints, no DNA, photographs, video recording, polygraph tests. Everything depended on the reliability of the witness. Guilt or innocence, in some cases life and death, or determined by the reliability of the witness. So Proverbs chapter 28, verse 18 says, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. So you can understand why this particular command that seems so obvious would be put in the Ten Commandments. So that's why it's important, but the reason it's confusing is because if you hear this is kind of a courtroom judicial setting, what we think of is not anything of what they, were un they understood that to be. So like when you hear courtroom setting or a, a, judicial, a judicial scene, you might be tempted to think jury summons, right? Maybe a drive to Santa Ana, 
waiting in that uh, jury-picking pool, right? Uh, Months of process back and forth, evidence being admitted, evidence being excused, lawyers, briefs, expert testimony, on and on and on, right? That's what you might be tempted to think. And that's nothing like, though, the judicial system or the justice system that Moses and the original hearers would have thought of when they heard this command. You see, justice was, and the court system was much more part of their everyday experience and existence, as much as it would be walking out of the gates of your town or city or village. You see, because how justice was administered, where the elders of that city or that village of town would often do the business of justice and a a business of the city right there at the town gates. And so every time a man or woman or child would walk out the gates of their city, they would see justice being administered. They would see witnesses giving testimony every day, all the time. Great example of this uh, is in Ruth chapter 4, if you're familiar with that narrative, where, where Boaz, who, who wants to have Ruth as his wife, but realizes that she's got a kinsman redeemer, so they got to work out the legalities of this. In chapter 4, he goes to the gates of the town where the elders are sitting, and he presents his case, and the kinsman redeemer shows up, and they say, how do we deal with this transaction? And the, so the justice is ministered right there. And so it's important to realize the gravity of what Moses is getting at, but it also could be potentially confusing because our understanding of justice and courts are different from theirs. So when they heard this, they want to understand at the same point the gravity of what the command was getting at and the applicability of it in everyday life. You see, laws and justice exist for human welfare, and God had commanded that murder, adultery, and theft, stealing were wrong, but in order to ensure that marriage, life, and property were safeguarded, you needed to have good legal institutions. And so right there in the Ten Commandments, the kind of Magna Carta of the people, in, a, in that particular context was canonized this commandment that you cannot bear false witness. When you are brought to testify, you testify to the truth, and we have that expression in our culture, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so this idea of a courtroom, more, more significantly, the reality that we give account for our words, that we are accountable for the things we say, are woven all through God's word, as if every now and again the reminder that every courtroom scene, every judicial action is really just pointing us forward to one final court scene and one final judicial action. And so you see all throughout the prophetic literature this this kind of imagery of courtroom scenes happening. You see in the New Testament seven times the writers of the New Testament refer to the day of judgment. The book of Revelation alone, 15 times, John talks about God's divine justice and judgment against humanity. And so all through the Bible we're being reminded, these kind of like Easter eggs, that, that justice, that life is in the balances and we give an account for what we do. And yet even in spite of that, all through the Bible we see false, false witnesses, don't we? So starting in the very uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, we have the first false witness given by Satan. In 1 Kings, we've seen Queen Jezebel giving false witness. In Matthew 26, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the only way they can get Jesus executed is to bring false witnesses. So even though the Bible is constantly pushing us towards true testimony, we see the the reality of sin and that there's false testimony being given all the time. 
So commandment nine in the Ten Commandments condemns the, the worst kind of false witnesses, one that would condemn an innocent man or woman to death. And so that's, that's the original context. And it's from that original kind of judicial context, but that from that flows the ultimate concern, right? So that's the original context. It's this judicial setting because it's very important, but from that flows the ultimate concern. And as we see Jesus doing in Matthew chapter 5, notice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never like squishes the Ten Commandments down, even though he is kind of what we might say in the New Testament, the law, the new law that God has given. He never diminishes the law. As a matter of fact, Jesus always expands the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? So he says to his hearers in Matthew 5, you have heard it said to you, you shall not murder, but I say what? Don't even get angry at your brother. You've been told that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes and you have committed adultery. Well, what Jesus is getting at, so so the commands as we see canonized in the Ten Commandments are always kind of uh, forbidding the extreme ends, but Jesus includes every kind of action, and in our case in Commandment 9, every kind of lie, false witness, and deception that would lead up to that primary action of being a false witness. So if you are not to bear false witness in a courtroom setting where someone's life may be at stake, then all forms of lying and deception are therefore equally wrong. So the the argument goes from greater to lesser. And by the way, Jesus isn't the only one that does this. Hosea does it. If you're a note taker, write down Hosea chapter 4 verse 2. In in Hosea's um, kind of uh, putting Israel on trial for the ways they have fallen and broken God's covenant, he says, you murder, you steal, you, you commit adultery, and you lie. He's clearly quoting this section of the Ten Commandments. Notice those are commandments 6, 7, and 8, and 9. What's interesting, though, Hosea, he doesn't use the judicial term we find in Exodus 20 that says bearing false witness. Hosea uses the general term of just lying. And so what we see is Hosea, he confirms this, that Hosea is doing what Jesus does. He expands the Ten Commandments. So the ultimate concern of commandment number nine is not just that you wouldn't give false testimony in in a legal proceeding, but it encompasses all the kinds of lies and deceptions we might be tempted to get involved in. So the kinds of lies you might hear neighbors sharing over their backyard fence, right? Kinds of rumors you might hear whispered in a church pew between services, the ninth commandment is, is commanded against all those things. The most obvious and blatant violation of the ninth commandment is when words, lies, deception hurt the innocent. So that's why we can translate it as, yeah, you shall not lie. But I think Moses wanted to establish the kinds of range of application. It, it doesn't just, it's not just the petty little things, but it includes the great massive things like judicial procedures. It's not just the big things like judicial procedures. It's the way you talk to your neighbor in your home or in your churches or in the lobby or at a Starbucks. And friends, the, the reality is there are so many ways that we lie, aren't there? I mean, there's the big lies, the little lies, the white lies, the half-truths the flattery, the fibs, we say something but don't add something to advantage ourselves in a situation, or we say something and add something to disadvantage someone else. We misrepresent, 
misconstrue, misquote, willfully misunderstand, choose to misinterpret, overstate our accomplishments, exaggerate someone's faults. We twist words and intentions. The ways we can exchange the truth for a lie are as numerous as the lies we tell ourselves that make it all okay. Friends, you do it. I do it. We all do it. And you'd be lying to yourself right now if you thought you don't do that. It is so deep in the human condition to play fast and loose with the truth all the time in so many different ways. This is why in the New Testament, James says, James chapter 3, verse 2, if a man or woman can tame their tongue, they are a perfect man. James isn't setting up an alternative way of salvation to say if as long as you speak well, then that's a different way to be saved. It's not what he's getting at. He's saying that the tongue is so powerful that if you can control the words that come out of your mouth, you'd be like a complete individual. Our words, James says in the same chapter, chapter 3, verse 5, can set the world ablaze, right? So he says that um, how great a forest does a small flame destroy, right? Us South County people, I mean, we have literally seen an example of this, right? As we've seen the holy fires burn down 23,000 acres, it's like 35 square miles, and it didn't all burn down because there was a bunch of arsons that carpet bombed the, the, the mountainside, you guys read the news? It all happened because one man with an accelerant and a lighter in 35 square miles burnt to the ground. See, the Bible captures this metaphor, the power of our words for truth or falsehood is immense. And so at the broadest point of application, commandment nine is saying, you are to be truth tellers because that is the very essence of who God is. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it says, let, God, let God, God the Father be true and all men are liar. Right? God the Son is called truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth. 1 John 4, 6 says, God the Spirit is true. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all called true, true, true. And so it falls that every word that comes from this amazing triune being is truth itself. And Jesus said that in John 17, 17, your word is truth. So friends, honesty is not the best policy just because that's what we think. Honesty is the best policy because all of our interactions are to be rooted in the very character of God himself. And that's why we speak truth, because we represent and serve and are image bearers of a God who is truth. And he enshrined it in the Ten Commandments. Now before moving on to a, an example from the New Testament, we need to ask a question that may be on some of your minds. Is there ever a time that we can actually say something that is not true? Right? Maybe you've been thinking of a scenario where a question's asked to you and you're not sure you want to give an honest answer. In, in other words, is there such a thing as a necessary lie? Is there such a thing as a necessary lie? And this is a complex issue. It, it gets into the, the, the nature of moral virtues and the corresponding of weight of one action over opposed to another in various situations. And we can't get into that this morning, but so what I do want to do is take you to Scripture and show you instances where you see deception being engaged in, um, but it's not condemned, okay? Um, that isn't to say that the Scripture encourages deception. I'm just saying that 
Well, I guess the point I'm making is that in a fallen world like ours, sometimes morality, there are some situations where morality is clear and understandable, and the context makes it easy, and sometimes it requires more thoughtful nuance if you're seeking to be honest to God's Word, right? That doesn't mean truth is relative. It doesn't mean that, that truth is indiscriminate. It's just recognizing that in a fallen world, sometimes moral virtues can kind of seem to be at odds at times, right? So, for example, Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 21, uh, you have the midwives, uh, Shephara and Puah. If you, remember, if you don't remember the story, Pharaoh says, I want all the Hebrew male babies slaughtered. And what do these midwives do? They lie, right? They save baby Moses. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Rahab herself, she hides the spies and tells her own kindred that the spies went out in a different direction. And what's interesting about Rahab is in Hebrews 11.31 and James chapter 2, those biblical writers actually point to that action as an evidence of Rahab's faith. I mean, talk about wanting to, in your community groups, you can wrestle through that, right? Um, what about the lady, uh, the woman Bahuram in 2 Samuel 17, where she hides David's allies as uh, David's enemies, or Absalom, his own son, are looking for them, and she hides them in the well and doesn't say anything. My point is that the Bible recognizes that there are situations in our world where sometimes moral virtues seem to be at contravention towards one another's, and they're not, but it just requires careful thought. In each of those situations, that's a violation of the ninth commandment. That was wrong, but it's also a greater wrong to allow a greater evil. And so each of those situations, they said something not true to prevent something worse from happening like a murder, right? So th this isn't a, a lesson in ethics or morality, but I just want to recognize that Scripture is not so simplistic, always tell the truth, and it doesn't have a category for other things, right? But the command is clear. You don't bear false witness. You give your word. You be a truth teller. So let's take a, vivid, a look at a vivid example in the New Testament of how God feels about lying and lies. And of course, there's a lot of liars we could look at in the Bible, right? Satan himself, obviously. Jesus calls him the father of lies. We talked about Queen Jezebel, all the false prophets in the Old Testament. But I chose to highlight a couple in the New Testament partly because it's such a shocking example and partly because it's such an ordinary example that I felt like it might hit closer to home. As a matter of fact, you might even imagine seeing these two kinds of people in a church somewhere today. You know, singing in some congregation, singing hymns, listening to God's Word one week, and then dropping dead the next. Now, what did they do? You might say, well, what did they do for that? Well, not much by our standards, they, they just simply told everybody they put more in the offering plate than they actually did, and God judged them with instant death. What were their names? You probably figured it out. Ananias and Sapphira. So let's read their story. You can leave Exodus and go to uh, Acts chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be in uh, page 913. Let me read you this story, this example of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? 
while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. No kidding. Verse 6, the young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out to bury him. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, Ananias' wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It sounds kind of shocking, doesn't it? You see, what's going on earlier in the book of Acts, just about five verses earlier, a man named Joseph, who had become a convert of Christianity, realized that the church in Jerusalem was struggling, and he had some land, and he sold his land, and he said, all the profits I made, I just want to give it so that people in our church don't have need. So he just brought all the proceeds and gave it away. And the people were so blown away at his selflessness and his generosity that they gave Joseph a nickname, a nickname you're probably familiar with, They nicknamed him the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And so Ananias and Sapphira see the great esteem that Joseph, now Barnabas, got, and they thought, well, we've got some land. Why don't we sell that too? And and we'll get the same kind of esteem that Barnabas now has. But they also wanted the money too. So they said, well, we'll just tell them this is what we sold it for, and they won't know the better. Now, I just need to be real clear here. No one told them that they had to sell their property, right? And they didn't have to give any of their money to the disciples or the other believers. It was their property after all. It was their money. It was their stewardship. It was theirs to do with, theirs to give away, theirs to keep. They were not under any compulsion to do this. But yet, what they were judged for was not that they held some back, is that they, they pretend this false pretense of being something they weren't, to look pious and good. All the while, they were marked by deception. And there's so much we can learn from this passage. Peter talks about where their sin came from, who put it there, how to respond to it, and how to turn from it. We don't have time for that. But the thing we need to see that even though Peter gave Sapphira, did you catch that? He even three hours later when the wife came in, he gave her a chance to repent. He said, tell me before you say anything, is this the amount you sold it for? She could have turned. But she said, no, that's what what we sold it for. And she was judged and she dropped dead. Peter reminds us again the universal truth that our sin is first again God, against God before it is against anyone else. We cannot sin against God and think we can get away with it. Ananias and Sapphira, they serve as a vivid example that violating the ninth commandment comes at a great cost. Friends, I wonder if you are shocked at the severity of God's judgment that we've just read about here in Acts chapter 5. After all, Haven't you done something worse? I I have. I've done something worse. 
Do you notice twice in these 11 verses the phrase, great fear came upon them all? I mean, you bet they got scared. You imagine those young men, Ananias drops dead and they go bury him. They come back a couple hours later and there's another person and they just got to go right back out and bury this one now. And what in the world's going on in this church? They got scared because they were thinking the same thing we should be thinking. (laughs) If God's going to judge these two for lying, what's he going to do to me? Because I've done way worse than that. That's why they got scared. Now, at this point, if you're reading this, especially if you're new to the Bible and Christianity, you might be thinking, well, does that sound fair? <laughs> Just a little tip. You don't want to get into the fair conversation with God, okay? Uh, <laughs> that's not how this goes. It is absolutely fair. I mean, friends, lying is the sin you could say that got us all into this mess called fallen humanity to begin with. It all started with a lie. Oh, God didn't really say that. You can do this. Believe that. Lying is a deadly sin. King David said so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm chapter 5, verse 6. He said, you, God, destroy all those who speak lies. And so when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, David's words simply came true. That's all that was going on there. David later in Psalm 15 would ask the question in the positive, Lord, who can ascend to your holy hill? Who can be with you? And he answers his own question. He says in verse 1 through 4, the one who speaks truth from his heart, no slander is on his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Friends, no wonder the early church was scared because what they had seen just happen in front of them was a preview of God's just judgment that was going to come on all who bear false witness. And they knew every one of them were guilty, just as all of us are guilty. In the book of Revelation 21.8, it says this, the cowardly, the faithless, all liars, their portion is in the lake of fire. You know what's scary? In chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus is called the faithful and true witness. Here's the problem, friends. You and I, who we can't go a single week without bearing false witness in some way, are going to have to face the one named the true and faithful witness. That is frightening. We should be scared enough to look for a solution and smart enough by now to know that solution does not come from us. So what do we do? Phil Riken says it best as I conclude. If there's one thing that God hates, he writes, it is the lies that Christians tell to make themselves look more righteous than they really are. Our testimony is that we are unrighteous, that there is no way we could ever be saved apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The real truth about us, the sobering truth, is that we are so guilty that the very Son of God himself had to be crucified to pay for our sins. If this is true, then why would we ever pretend to be anything more than sinners saved by grace? That's that's right. To act like we have it spiritually together is a lie, but even more, it is the denial of the grace of God which alone has the power to save us. I love that. Let's end this morning with some gospel truth, shall we? Good old gospel truth, here it is. We are all liars and we're all sinners. Now, why do I say that with a smile? Because that's a truth I embrace about myself. But the more important truth I embrace is for as good as we are at being liars and sinners, Jesus is a better friend and savior. And it's not about my truth telling that saves me at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's that he is the faithful and true witness and he never spoke mistruth and he never lied. 
and he gives his righteousness to me and all of us who are, who are not going to lie to themselves anymore about our own righteousness, who can honestly say, I am a liar and a sinner and I deserve just judgment. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira should happen to me, but it's not going to because I am trusting in the one who says he will save me and he will give his righteousness to me just as he will give it to anyone in this room who asks. That's the good news. So God can be just in that he is true, that there can be no false witnesses, but he can be the justifier of those who are sinners because Christ, the true witness, paid the price for our false witnessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is so penetrating to our lives. And Father, we admit that we are liars and sinners because of our sin. But we are grateful that though we may be good liars and sinners, Christ is a greater friend and Savior. And it's to him that we run. It's to him that we rely on, the faithful and true witness, who is faithful even in spite of our faithlessness. And we give you all the praise and thanks. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.